title of this message is, The More Things Change, The More They Stay the Same. New Covenant portion will be in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. And I would like to apologize for being uh, relatively unconscious during the week and sending out my notes rather than the message to those who received them through the email. I did send out the message eventually when I realized I printed out my notes and not message. So, there you go. Sorry. If you're young and are upset with me, soon you will be old and understand. A knowledge of the truth is the only thing that can open the eyes of people who are witnessing delusion, the delusion that surrounds us. Now, attempt to do this today. I'd much rather speak about God, but speaking about the evil that confronts us is actually more important, especially in these days. I see things differently than most other people. I am historically literate, and therefore the events of today are placed within a context. I really enjoyed history when I was a child. And I was taught it well when I was in school. World history was okay, but I loved American history. The great experiment in liberty simply captured my imagination. More specifically, the history of New York City was quite fascinating to me because I was born and raised there. New York provided the most profound example of the practical workings of the great American melting pot, as it was called when I was a child. Each culture tended to group together in various neighborhoods or ghettos. And on numerous school field trips, one could observe how these different nationalities and ethnicities lived, how they interacted with one another and others who came from outside that neighborhood. But it was the dark side of New York that was most intriguing to me. For I saw within that darkness a view of how each group chose to rule itself within these isolated enclaves. The Irish gangs of Five Points, the Bowery, Hell's Kitchen, Lower Manhattan, the five families of the Mafia who were isolated in Little, little Italy, the Black Gangs of Harlem, the Puerto Rican Gangs of Spanish Harlem, and the mysterious Chinatown gangs, which nobody knew anything about, was a completely closed society. They provided a study in contrast to these different ethnicities and these dis different nationalities. Of course, not wanting to leave out my own heritage, there were a few Jewish gangs left over from the, uh, the days of old monk Eastman, whose sworn enemy was the Irish Five Points gang, obviously from Five Points. 
And, of course, there was the legacy left from the days of Prohibition through the names like Meyer Lansky, Bugsy Siegel, Lepke, The Brain, Rothman, and others. Apparently, old Rothman was relatively intelligent. Not too intelligent. He was a thug. But this odd collection of miscreants and ne'er-do-wells were the obvious expressions of evil that you could see and point to. Lurking in the shadows was a dark and controlling presence that everybody knew existed and nobody spoke about. And the reason they didn't speak about it is this gang was untouchable. Everybody knew they were there, but there was absolutely nothing you could do about it. The biggest, the most powerful, the most vicious, and certainly the most insidious gang in New York City was by far the government of New York City. And I'm not being facetious here. City Hall formed alliances with most of the different gangs. The Italians, the Irish, the Jews, the, whatever. They had alliances with them, and they allowed them to operate within certain parameters. Huge sums of money were exchanged as criminals bribed city officials under the table or through uh, election campaign contributions or the funding of pet projects, etc. Police would take a portion of whatever they confiscated, whatever contraband was there, for whatever reasons. The city would then reciprocate by turning a blind eye to their behavior or awarding them various kinds of contracts, rezoning their properties so that they could build what they wanted to want it, so on and so forth. The corruption of New York City Hall was legendary. Ancient, actually. It was historically owned and controlled by a group called Tammany Hall. Now, if you're older, that might spark a memory of some obscure and boring history class that you might remember, but most folks don't know the context of Tammany Hall. This infamous group was established in the late 1780s in New York City, which was America's first capital. Its most famous members were Aaron Burr, who served as vice president under Thomas Jefferson, and who was most famous for shooting Alexander Hamilton in a duel. Then there was, in a local context, the infamous knave, Boss Tweed, a prominent and thoroughly vicious New York City councilman. The man was outlandish. Violence was, again, legendary. This group eventually became the political machine and was part of the founding of the Democratic Party in 1828. Now, this is not a Democrat bashing message. This is a matter of public record. It is historical fact. You can look it up on the Internet. 
I'm not making any of this up. It's, it's just a matter of fact. Their public face was helping the new immigrants. That sound familiar? New, new immigrant was a euphemism for the Irish, who represented the vast majority of the new immigrants in the 1800s in, in the United States of America, by far and away. They saw these poor folks as a means to acquire political power. Bribery, extortion, coercion were all considered fair play as they led, as they were led by the motto, the end justifies the means. Murders were committed and sanctioned by the government to get rid of people that were opposed to the government. It's historical record. These, these are facts. Local gangs were employed to press their agenda. At election time, they would herald the cause of this group in the streets of New York City with the phrase, vote early, vote often. Yeah, the more things change, the more they never. Tammany Hall colluded with the Irish gangs to consolidate the Irish vote. And when they did, they became simply unstoppable. Tammany Hall officially disbanded in 1967 when I was a, a senior in high school. Eventually, the Democratic Party officially broke ties with them, and that caused them to disband. I and many of my generation noted the corruption and the injustice that was created by this group, and we sought to resist their evil, but quickly realized the futility of that resistance. It was, became very obvious. We came to understand what all the generations before us came to understand. You can't fight City Hall, or in this case, you can't fight Tammany Hall. It's impossible. As soon as you were making progress, the rules would change. Those who tried to fight ended up being prosecuted for various crimes, either contrived or done way, way back in the day. Disillusioned, millions from my generation sought God for answers. His word confirmed the direction our society had chosen, and I saw the wisdom from a line from a Joni Mitchell song who was a relatively famous uh, folk singer from Canada in the, early, in the late 60s and early 70s. She made two observations that resonated with my soul. First one was a melodic line that was fun. Hey, paradise, put up the parking lot. And as I looked around New York City, I went, yeah, Truth. We took something as beautiful as any place in upstate New York and paved it. They even wrote a poem about the one tree they left. A tree grows in Brooklyn. 
was the title of the poem, and they, they ended up counting the trees that grew in Brooklyn and, and wrote a poem about the one tree that grew in Brooklyn. Her second quote was birthed from an absolutely desperate frustration. We gotta get back to the garden. He was referring, obviously, to Gan Eden. And that idea has guided me since the early 70s. It guides me still. If, if there's one phrase that could describe my, my journeys in this life, getting back to the garden. Abandoning this war in New York, which was lost. I sought to build my own Garden of Eden in the wilds of Idaho. In the wilderness, a man can draw close to God, for he is often your only companion. You're typically alone. But as I discovered over the course of a decade, the wilderness is not the destination. It is a means to an end. It is, in fact, God's boot camp for those he calls to serve him. It is there one learns discipline, tenacity, and the most important skill to carry out God's mission. It is in the stillness and the struggles of the wilderness that one learns how to draw near to God and trust God and how to recognize his voice. That's where I learned that, in the wilderness. To my chagrin, I have lived long enough to see the predictions that I made in my youth come to fruition. The predictions about the course of our nation and where that course would eventually take us. Sadly, I have also seen many of those who sought God in the 1970s leave their original ideals. They abandoned the shelter of his wings for a shelter of their own making. We got to get back to the garden was traded for the deception they wished to avoid. If you can't beat them, join them. In January of 2020, I saw all the corruption that I witnessed in my youth in New York City government play out on a national scale under the guise of helping the new immigrants. Many were encouraged to vote early and to vote often. We witnessed a resurrection of the dead as voters long since deceased cast their ballots alongside citizens of other nations. Nobody seemed to care. Obvious election indiscretions were simply ignored, and even when one-third of the United States, the states of the United States, filed suit with the Supreme Court, it was dismissed. They didn't take up the case. The legacy of Tammany Hall is alive and well. Their standard operating procedure is to choose certain issues to indoctrinate and then fracture American society. And with their uh, 
cohorts in the media, those issues are pressed. The election this last November was most revealing to me, and my heart sank. It really did. Not so much about the corruption. I don't actually believe there was that, that much corruption, no more than usual. Every election has corruption. From George Washington to the present, every single one. Was, the only corruption we need to deal with is the, is the corruption that would actually change the result of an, an election. That's the important part. But in a CNN poll, uh, an exit poll, it was revealed that most Democrats were not pleased with the direction their party was taking. And they cited the economy, inflation, the chaos at the border, etc. Very similar to my, my own concern. However, they still voted Democrat. Because their greatest fear was if Republicans get in, they would abolish the right of women to obtain an abortion. That single issue decided this last election. Please understand this. If these, if these exit polls are accurate, and I suspect they are, one single issue decided this last election. Abortion. And if you believe the world is the only one promoting this horror, think again. Many church, many churches, denominations, many synagogues, the vast majority of my people endorse this kind of barbarism. Truth. This is not a new battle. Throughout the history of Israel and the church, assimilation into the world has always been the primary temptation. The mechanic, the workings out of the command to be in the world, but not of it, has produced extremely deep schisms within the body of Messiah. For most of history, God calls his people to be a light in the midst of darkness, to reveal his presence, to encourage others to follow him and to reveal his goodness and his righteousness. And at other times, God calls his people to abandon a place, to leave, to come out from amongst that evil. That was the call to Noah. It was the call to Abraham. It was the call to Lot. It was the same call I heard in New York City when I left. Get out of there. You know, I didn't know it was from God, it was from my own logic, but I just looked at the futility of this battle and nothing's changing. And I left. God is certainly patience, patient with man, but that patience has limits. In Genesis 6, my spirit will not always strive or fight with man, will not always resist the evil that dwells in his heart. In Isaiah 55, seek me while I still might be found, which implies that there is a time when he will not be able to be found. I don't know what other inference to draw from that statement. Romans 1 tells us what happens when individuals abandon God 
and his ways. We are turned over to a reprobate mind which confuses good and evil. And they descend into a state of chaos. There's all this, as well the fate of any city or nation who corporately abandon God's ways. That's what happens every time. Our nation has determined the choice to kill our most, the most innocent among us overrides all other considerations. There are consequences for such decisions. We have chosen death over life. Many believers have sought to enter politics to help our nation achieve some level of righteousness, to fix the problems from within. When I was younger, I considered the pros and cons of this path, and although I admire their courage, I concluded the premise to be false. Politics relies on laws to compel righteous behavior. In Galatians 3, I mentioned this last week, reveals the futility of that premise. If a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly come through the law. But righteousness comes by faith. It is, it, it is faith by which the righteous live. One does not walk in his ways to receive faith. One has faith which creates a desire inside of you to walk in his ways. The two paths are diametrically opposed. They travel in different directions. Politics is not the panacea that some propose it to be. All of our ills would not be fixed if we had people of faith making our laws and guiding our society toward biblical principles. Sorry, that is historically inaccurate. That has never worked. Not a single time or place. Neither the Roman church nor Constantinople nor any of the European governments who were ruled by divine succession of kings resulted in a righteous society. Death resulted. Israel was a nation founded by God itself. His Torah was our constitution, and his visible presence was in our midst, leading us and guiding us. God spoke to us. And yet, with even, the, even with these obvious advantages, the failures of political and religious leadership when man is involved was obvious. The law of God became a tyranny in the hands of evil men. And once again, death and destruction followed those who proclaimed the name of God. Read Kings, read Chronicles. There is simply no blessing of God that man cannot turn into a curse. What a gift 
one of the more obscure Romans 12 gifts. You got to read between the lines. Sadly, but predictably, many righteous men who sought political power ended up becoming precisely what they set out to fight against. Bad company corrupts good morals. It was true when Paul spoke it 2,000 years ago. It's still true today. Over the last four decades in this pulpit, and even before, even in Idaho, people have, quote, believers don't tell you what to do. They encourage you, you know, semantics have encouraged me to enter politics. We need people like you, uncompromising men of integrity. Well, that's enough to make a man swoon. My reply is always the same, and it's relatively humorous. You already have men like me in politics. Every person is vulnerable to the excesses of power and wealth, period, end of line. There was only one man who was able to resist that. Every other human being born of man and woman is vulnerable to those excesses. It would be presumptuous for me to believe that I would be the different one. There's, there's no doubt in my mind I would succumb. My refusal to consider such a path is twofold. First, God has called me to teach his word. To abandon that lofty call. To enter into politics would be the very first step on the road to perdition. I truly believe that. Second, the nature of politics does not allow for the concepts of righteousness, integrity, and truth to flourish. The soil in which political seeds grow is poisonous to these qualities in a person. It doesn't allow for it. Governments are filled with people who entered politics to do good and became everything they first despised. The last temptation of Yeshua after 40 days of fasting was what? Political power. Matthew chapter 4, the, the devil took him up to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. They, were, they belong to the devil, the principalities and powers and wickedness that ran those particular... You know, Paul is quoting from, from Daniel. When the angel Gabriel came and the principality that, that exerted power over Persia captured and imprisoned Gabriel, and Michael, the archangel, had to come and free him. These principalities and powers do not allow for righteousness to flourish. Those 
those nations belonged to the devil, and they were his to give, and Yeshua refused. The problem with politics is, in order to get ahead, you have to compromise your beliefs. It's absolutely required. Money is the god of politics. And any campaign must first acquire what they euphemistically refer to as a war chest. It's used to pay the extraordinary costs that are involved in getting elected. You have no idea. And the higher up you go, the higher those costs go. You may start out with six figures, but eventually you'll be in the tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions, to get actually elected to a national office. To acquire that kind of money, one has to make alliances with and adjust his message to fit the concerns of the majority of the people who are going to support that campaign. Now, good men rationalize their compromises with the words, well, look at the good I can do and just get elected. But even a casual perusal of that statement reveals the sophistry, the fallaciousness of it. To pursue integrity by abandoning your principles to achieve a a seat of power in order to enact your principles is by definition a lack of integrity. Called hypocrisy. Why would anybody believe your integrity would not be compromised to maintain that seat of power once it has been won? There's nothing to suggest that. We've seen this in our days. Men of faith had to go along with, and in some cases endorsed, the shutting down of churches and synagogues during the great COVID fear. Apparently their faith in God was not as great as their fear of disease, or more precisely, of being politically marginalized and sidelined. People who disagreed with this COVID fear were castigated. Some were even imprisoned. And as a little aside, I just, I just heard this. I've been receiving, I, I received this email, and I've been hearing this on the radio and TV constantly. Um, receive up to $26,000 for every employee that you kept hired during COVID. Think about that for just, just a moment. Don't think too long because it'll hurt your head and you'll lose IQ points. But just ponder that, that statement for a second. They're offering rewards for ignoring the laws that they made to shut down. And now they want to reward you for disobeying those laws. Who can make that up? 
The insanity of that is, and now, who's going to pay for it? Us. We lost money during the short shutdown, and now we lose more money because now we're paying people because they broke the law and stayed open during the shutdown. And all I want to do is walk into my room and never come out again. Because I, I cannot stand this, these, these things. My, my brain simply will not process these kinds of statements. You know, like the old Max, a little picture of a skull and bones, crossbones appears and, uh, you know, reboot your computer. Um, Got to stick a fork in the outlet. Give myself uh, some shock treatment to return to, to some level of normalcy. Obviously, it, it hasn't worked. Men of faith in the government had to go along with liquor stores and pot shops remaining open. As an inebriated society is more easily controlled. Further, they need the tax revenues from these particular products. Men of faith in the halls of power go along with and in some cases endorse. They are in favor of the Johnson Act, which prohibits and restricts preachers and tells them what they can and cannot speak about. The movement of our nation towards the man of lawlessness proceeds with either the consent or the passive silence of those people of faith within government. Otherwise, they're out of the government. The watchmen who speak out are referred to as radicals, and their voices are mar marginalized by those who give a Paul's call for moderation. Uh, Paul had a very specific focus for that statement. Paul was certainly not moderate in his faith or the expression of that faith. God seeks those whose faith is indeed radical. Those utterly dedicated to his cause, unabashed, unashamed, and without fear to proclaim his name before all. And when you do that, you will meet with resistance. It is a sure and certain fact. In fact, it is a promise from God. In this world, you will have trouble. I encourage you, be watchful in these latter days, for the deception that covers this earth is strong indeed, and it tempts us. Only the lovers of truth will see the darkness that is lurking behind the lustrous appearance. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Do not be fooled. Take courage. Stay strong. He's coming. Soon, I should suspect. And I wish I was a little healthier and could employ 
my Pentecostal background. Hold on. He's coming. Yeah. If I was standing up and did a dip there, I would never recover. I'd be down on the ground and half a dozen men would have to come and help me back up. Yeah, Pentecostal is a young man's faith. He, my old pastor was Pentecostal. He used to break out in song. and Boy, I could, as I was preparing this message, I could hear him singing. His voice was pretty good, too. Don't let my uh, voice deter from the message. Be wise. The deception these days is so deep. It is so intense. It is so beyond your ability to see through it with these eyes. Only the eye of faith. Only the voice of God calling from the other side of that darkness can lead you through it. And that is a sure and certain fact. Father, in Yeshua's name, I thank you that the shofar blast that precedes your voice, that clarion call is a beacon in the midst of Arafel, a deep darkness that, that we are immersed in right now. Let our ears perk up every time we hear the call of the truah. Lord, may your golden voice lead us home in Yeshua's precious name. Amen.